What's going on, everybody? It's me, Asad Hashmali, back again with another episode of Behind the Grind. It's episode number 22, and this time we have Isma Khan, who is a board certified behavior analyst. Did I get that right? Yes, absolutely. Great. Isma, how are you doing today? Very well. Thanks for joining. By the way, um, we've been trying to schedule this for some time, and it's finally happened. And um, I went through your podcast with uh, Kazi Akbar, and I have to say, I've even been through iCare's Instagram page and what you've been doing, and it's great. Honestly speaking, I think that I've always felt that I haven't been able to put the right words to it, but I feel like there's a lot of uh, need for mental health awareness and also action towards that awareness and behind that awareness too, and. Um, It's safe to say that like what you're doing, according to me, is great, and um, that's what I want to learn about a little bit as well. And I feel like um, what we often don't understand is that we'll throw words around, right? You know, those who actually haven't been certified or aren't professionals in the space. Um, and one of the first things actually they want to ask you is, what does it really mean to be a board-certified behavior analyst? What is that? Okay, so um, basically. We call it board certified behavior analyst, or the short form is BCBA. So what that essentially means is, uh, in in the USA, there's a board called the Behavior Analyst Certification Board. Mm-hmm. Lots of behavior analysts going on here, and this board essentially um, gives credentials to individuals who are studying and working in the field of behavior analysis. Okay. So just kind of take it a step back before we kind of go into the qualification. I want to just touch up on what it means um, to do behavior analysis, which is a form of therapy essentially. Okay. So uh, behavior analysis is a science; it's evidence based, and it was started by. I mean, I don't know if you ever heard in biology, B.F. Skinner um, and mm-hmm. the Pavlovian conditioning when the dog yeah. hears the tone, it's like yes. food's coming. So that was all about studying animal behavior, and mm-hmm. then the principles of that were then applied on humans as well. And why it's important is because when you have individuals who are unable to communicate and who are trying to express themselves, behavior becomes the expression of communication. Mm. Be it a child taking your hand and guiding you. To a particular thing, be it a child pointing to an item, be it the fact that an individual um, nods their head, it's a mm-hmm. form of acknowledgement. Whatever we see in a human is a behavior. So behavior analysis is all about, and it's very important, particularly for children with autism and other developmental delays, because when a child is trying to communicate and they are unable to use functional words. They communicate through behavior, and mm-hmm. then what we do is we come in there and teach them how to appropriately communicate. Mm-hmm. So I, I kind of gave you a bit of a background about what behavior analysis is, and mm-hmm. to kind of come back to your question about BCBA, uh, there are three, there are four credentials that the B, the board in the USA certifies you with, and the the, the bottom one is RBT, where there are many individuals mm-hmm. in Pakistan who do it, and it's a forty hour training whereby you learn. Basics of behavior analysis, and you become an, a practitioner. Then there is BCABA, which is your behavior analyst, but you're an assistant behavior analyst, which means you can only practice under a behavior analyst under supervision. And then there's BCBA, which is what I am, and then there's BCBAD, which is a BCBA who's done a doctorate. Mm-hmm. And what this means is that we have done 1,500 hours of supervision. So we've had a supervisor watch our practical work, and also we have done our masters and. Theory and so when you do your theory and you do your practical, you combine the two and you sit an exam and it's a four-hour exam. It took took about three months to study for it, 
And so when I got qualified and I moved back to Pakistan about four years ago, I was the first in Pakistan mm-hmm. as a BCB. It's a very new field. And now there are three, four more, um, and and hopefully it's growing. But now they've changed the, the system. So after 2023, if you're based in Pakistan, you cannot be a BCBA. Really? We can maintain our credential, but you cannot become a new BCBA. So that's a bit of, in a nutshell what BCBA means. Okay, yeah. so, but, uh, so what I'm getting is that it seems to be... Uh, and forgive me if I'm getting this wrong, but it seems to be a little bit along the lines of like the med school route as well, is that you'll spend a couple of years first understanding uh, every element and then practicing that as well. But for you to maintain your, your, your degree, your qualifications, do you have to revise constantly? Do you have to go for like some kind of refresher courses of sorts? Right. So, yeah, good question. Um, so we as a BCB have to do continue continuing education credits which are called CEUs mm-hmm. and which means that we have to subscribe to particular universities in, in, in abroad anywhere in the world and we get credits but they have to be certified from the board so they have to be approved mm-hmm. so I need to do 32 credits every two-year cycle okay so I just I'm completing my second year cycle in December and then I'll, I'll roll over to the next two-year cycle so we have to keep up to date with research different strategies to use with children it's always changing okay and uh, so yeah we it's, you maintain it and if you don't maintain it you lose the credential okay and is, is this following in line with updates in the D- dsm is right so uh dsm is related good job yeah, did yeah you know? i studied psychology by the way right yeah in okay. a levels but that's all i know so okay yeah so so the dsm is essentially a manual which is right. used to diagnose individuals with different mental health disorders um and so i mean that is more used by psychologists and psychiatrists okay because their role is to look at the mind and understand the mind and see why a person is being a certain way because of the way they think mm-hmm. whereas in a beha- as a behavior analyst we're the complete opposite we think whatever we see the behavior is what we analyze and then mm-hmm. manage so the dsm is not something we really look into okay but yes they, what happens is a psychologist or psychiatrist will first diagnose a child based on the DSM manual and then the kid will come to us for an intervention, okay. which is the therapy. So that's actually the first step for a child. Correct. It's not like they come straight to you, they first have to get a diagnosis. Well, you know, honestly, I truly believe, not all, all BCBAs or practitioners believe this, but I believe that a child can come to me even if they're two and a half years old and they're not diagnosed, I will still take them on. Because in the end, they're delayed and they need help. And they need to be. They need to work on certain skills, and I will still work with them, even if they don't have a diagnosis. And I have many of them, um, but generally, the the, protocol, the the route to take is if a parent notices red flags, they have to first go to a psychologist or psychiatrist who will diagnose a child, and they come for therapy. Okay. But having said that, honestly speaking, we are not uh, eligible to diagnose. Uh, but after seeing so many children, I deal predominantly with children with autism, but I also have other delays. And having seen so many different children, I can definitely tell if I think they're on the spectrum or not. So I could tell a parent saying, well, I think your child has red flags for being on the spectrum. However, if you want a diagnosis, then you have to go to a second. Okay, and that's come with experience and with time. Correct. Okay, yeah. all right. Yeah. So what, what defines um, autism? What, what is that? Okay, so autism is... Uh, so for I'll give you an example. Einstein was autistic. Uh, and... There, there are a couple more people who were also autistic, um, famous people. Susan Boyle, who did Britain's Got Talent, that ah, lady. Okay. So there's a, and basically, I gave you those names is because autism is a spectrum, right. which means that uh, all individuals are different. It's a 
neurodevelopmental disorder, which is characterized predominantly by lack of social and communication issues, which means um, unable to communicate, understanding emotions and building relationships is difficult for them. Their EQ in terms of, oh, this person's feeling sad or they're being sarcastic. Mm-hmm. Um, that concept is, is, is kind of weak. And also apart from that, they engage in repetitive or stereotypical behaviors, which are either hand flapping or walking mm-hmm. on tiptoes. They might close their ears because sounds could be too no- noisy to them, which may not be to us. So they have extra sensitive senses. Um, and then generally they like to be on their own. So, but then, as I said, you can have kids on the spectrum or individuals on the spectrum, or even adults, who can talk and communicate. And a lot of people tell me there's a lot of, you know, mis- misinterpretations about autism. And they say, well, this child can talk, so they're not There's autistic. nothing wrong, yeah. And I said, well, just because they can talk doesn't mean they're not autistic. It could be that they're socially very awkward, with it, mm-hmm. you know, and so therefore they're on the spectrum. So you know, some kids on the other extreme um, who cannot communicate at all, and then they would communicate through sign language and mm-hmm. stuff. And just on that note, if you want to understand an individual who we, you might see in society and think, is he autistic or not? The good doctor. They ha- it's about an autistic doctor. And they mm-hmm. highlight so many of these little traits really well about how he doesn't understand how to uh, understand sarcasm or when another doctor is trying to be in a relationship with him, he like backs away and he doesn't mm-hmm. like touch. So these are a lot of the things that they actually do. Okay. All right. So, so there's... The, there's Two ends of the spectrum, right? And there's a high functioning, there's low functioning, right? Correct. So, like, what are some uh, like key identifiers or flags for both ends? Can I just say, first of all, I'm very impressed you did your homework really Thank well. Thank you very much. <laughs> Thank you very much. Yeah, but I because I genuinely do have an interest in this, you yeah. know, and I've heard about it for so long. I've even in, in A level psychology, I had abnormal psychology, so that gave me this uh, this edge in a mm. way. So, like, most of my homework's been done. <laughs> not flexing, not showing off, but yeah. <laughs> so no, that's impressive. No, a lot of people don't know what high function, low function means, but yeah. So high functioning is when you are more typical, right? Which means you can probably communicate and you can express yourself, but then there's that element of social awkwardness or sensory behaviors, and then there's low functioning, which is individuals are more severe mm-hmm. and they stand out more in terms of they have more physical features such as hand flapping, walking on tiptoes, um, producing non-functional sounds and not able to communicate at all no words and that's the other extreme mm-hmm. and then kids can be anywhere on the spectrum moderate mild so mild autistic and high functioning is the same and severely autistic or low functioning is the same and okay anywhere okay but this is is there any overlap uh between autism and down syndrome well um so Autism and Down syndrome are not really overlapped, no. Down syndrome is, is, is because of a missing chromosome. Right. And that causes not only a cognitive delays, but also physical changes. Okay. Be it um, their fingers, their mm-hmm. fingers are shaped differently, or their eyes or their nose. And, and so I would say, but re- I have to say in terms of research, because I've actually done a decent amount of workshops with KDSP, mm-hmm. the Karachi Down Syndrome Center, and... We talked about uh, Down syndrome and, and behavior therapy. And when I was doing my research, there isn't really much overlap. However, autism is comorbid or overlapping with other other disorders such as anxiety, ADHD. Okay. So 33 to 40% of individuals with autism have ADHD as well. Um, and a, an element of OCD as well. So okay. it falls more with those than Down syndrome. Okay. 
so that also then goes to say is that as you said like there's no physical symptoms of autism it's more about recognizing based on cues in communication correct, right? correct. so have you ever worked with adults that are on the spectrum um i haven't really most of our work is based on early intervention so working with children between the ages of 2 to 7 mm-hmm. and that's the age group we predominantly see um having said that i have to say so the reason i'm actually in this field is because my uncle's son is severely autistic mm. and he's now about 21 years old so i count him as an adult and i saw him like 3 4 years ago uh, i went to lahore and he was the first adult that i tried to work with he didn't go very well because he was like who are you like why are you telling me what to do <laughs> and um and i tried to teach him signs and he actually did kind of pick up on movie and and things uh-huh. um but I haven't really worked with them for a long period of time or anything okay. like that. Yeah. Uh, because you know I'm very uh, because it's not something which is physical, right? I'm also very curious to know about that because um there was a time when like even for example, I don't know about your parents, but my parents definitely didn't have words like depression and anxiety in their vocabulary up until like 2010 or you know mm-hmm. 2005. Um so even then, you know, like these could have been this could have been something which was probably like pushed under the rug mm-hmm. uh parents didn't want to acknowledge it or didn't want to recognize it and now it would have manifested into something else i don't know actually it's really good point and i think um i think the the most difficult part for families like them like my my cousin and others is that the awareness was not there mm-hmm. right and the intervention was not there as i just said i moved back four years ago and i was the first behavior analyst in pakistan so you can just imagine before that there are still people who've done behavior therapy etc but they're not certified to kind of practice and supervise etc and when i look at him i i i i always think i think i wish i was there when he was a little boy and i was the person i am today because by now he would probably be speaking but currently it's all through signs so i think back then the problem was awareness mm-hmm. absolutely lack of uh, interventions and also denial mm-hmm. so oh there's a problem i don't know what to do um then once they accepted it then it's like okay now where do we go mm-hmm. and i think also what and then what happens is a lot of families have moved abroad because they wanted to uh, to get the interventions yeah. but obviously it's not everyone can do that and so they kind of have to stay back for work but yeah it's it's truly a shame but i definitely think that we're on the right track in terms of creating more awareness. And definitely I can see that like by the likes of yourselves and even KDSP mm-hmm. um I went to their facility. Okay. And I heard about their plans about what they want to do and it's amazing again but like it's I feel like it's it's just a little teardrop in a big pond right now mm-hmm. and there's a long long way to go. So yeah. hopefully more will more like you will pop up. Inshallah. Yeah, but so so tell me a little bit about eye care. What what do you what is what's the day in, at eye care like how did it start? Okay. So uh, w- when I moved back 4 years ago I was on my own didn't know where to start and then I started speaking to different like the Ziaudi speech and language center I had conducted talks as well I started off by giving talks in various settings went to AKU and I was meant to set up units in those hospitals but then I think due to the hierarchy etc things took a little longer than anticipated so I decided you know what I'm just going to start working out of my house 
and i remember now when i look back like i had a client come in and i'd set up a room in my house which mm-hmm. was essentially the guest room i took over my dad's like you should pay half the rent in the house cuz you have a bedroom and you've taken over the other <laughs> room <laughs> anyway so i took over this room i set it up got a bunch of toys and i started um working with 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 children and i worked in in london and i worked in dubai in an american clinic so when i came back to karachi i had an idea but the the difference is when you're abroad and you're working in a center you've got someone to speak to whereas mm-hmm. now i'm like okay i make the decisions which is very overwhelming yeah. um and i'd make the receipts and all of that kind of stuff and then i'd take up to up to seven children doing therapy and so what would a day well a day in in generally in i care so i'll move on to that but then after working in my house i hired a few more people and Alhamdulillah, word word got round, word of mouth, social media, special needs, Pakistan is a Facebook page, mm-hmm. and then I sort of expanded and created I Care, which essentially uh, came from I dot Care, which is mm-hmm. I Care, which is I think the most important thing, and then the K is Khan because I'm Ismail I Ismail Khan, yeah, okay. so that's kind of the, the the name behind it. And what it's like is we have children who come in from around 10 a.m. till about 6 p.m. Mm-hmm. and we have therapists on the team and every child has one therapist okay and sessions are either 1 hour or 2 hours so it's basically like a therapy center it's mm-hmm. not a school and it's like intensive time and what happens let's take a client for example we'd spend in that hour we'd spend 80% of the time uh, would be in play play therapy which is sitting on the carpet doing water play teaching them how to request for water teaching them how to request for chip or cookie or puzzle or ball or spin or swing or anything and functional words that these children will use in their day-to-day lives and mm-hmm. then 20% of the time of that one hour is spent at a table where there's a the therapist and the child and we work on compliance like hold your hands because what they do is they'll start touching things and mm-hmm. wanting to play and so so we'll say hold your hands and then we'll send a build table tolerance work on imitation oh. skills and we do matching etc so that's kind of how a session goes and throughout the day we have multiple sessions mm-hmm. we have trainings when parents come in i would sit with the parent uh, while the therapist sits with the child and we kind of demonstrate it then we have um then we have team demonstrations amongst each other if if we need to clarify certain concepts okay. so it's definitely crying screaming laughing all of that oh, all yeah. of that happens all yeah. in one hour <laughs> oh, yeah yeah so so do you so when a, how, how do you assess um a child coming in in the first place because like i understand that you'll you know you you will do your own um uh, assessment of every student of every child as well and then you would identify the needs of that child and then move on am i getting that right yeah, yeah. but then how would you um sorry this question is actually changed now but how would you end up uh putting a mark on when they can stop coming to you mm, okay you sound like a true father right there yeah? that's exactly the kind of question okay. dad's asked me so cuz moms are like how is my child and the dad's like so tell me when will the child <laughs> stop coming here i guess the financial burdens on them <laughs> but basically um so what we do is the child starts and then we start by running an assessment and seeing where the child is at now the thing with aba therapy which is therapy we do applied behavior analysis simpler terms behavior therapy um it is actually a way of life it's mm-hmm. something that it's not just oh they go for therapy it's it's got techniques like reinforcement mm-hmm. uh, like acknowledgement like 
these are all things that we use in our day to day lives. You don't need to go for therapy for them. So it's something that parents need to utilize for years to come. Okay. So, but having said that, honestly, I think it really varies. It can be one year, it can be three years, it can be five years. ABA therapy is proven to be the most effective therapy for individuals with autism. And they say that children should only go to mainstream schools when they have all the prerequisite skills to go to school, which is sitting on a table, having sitting tolerance, eye contact, following instructions, stand up, sit down, bring your bag. They need to be able to understand all these things. And teaching those prerequisites can take between one to three years, um, if not longer, depending on mm -hmm. how intensive the therapy is. They say a minimum of 40 hours a week is required, but we do five hours a week. So you can see there's a there's a big difference. So then mm -hmm. the remaining time, the parents need to kind of implement strategies at home. So if I'm trying to teach a child a sign for water, and they come to me, and they're not thirsty, I cannot work on it. So I tell the parents, okay, when the child is at home and you want to teach them the sign for water, every time they have a sip, water. Water, give them a sip. Water, give them a sip. So it's coaching for the parents as well. Exactly. Okay. And that's where the consistency element is key. Okay. It's done in the center and it's done at home. The child is more likely to understand okay. how they have to be in every setting. Okay. Yeah. And um, and so because you said that ABA is like the most proven technique, what other techniques are there? Well, I mean, there's obviously, there's different therapies. There's speech therapy and there's occupational therapy. And okay. within therapies, there are different styles of teaching. There is floor time. Um, and then there's natural environment teaching. So there's multiple components. But... What also, what I want to also clarify as you asked that question is what happens in Pakistan is a child, let's say, is diagnosed and then they're often told you need to send your child to speech therapy and occupational therapy. But not always does a child need those therapies mm -hmm. because ABA is so new that then they don't even get told about it. Because see, if a child does not have sitting tolerance and cannot follow instruction, how are they to sit through a spe speech session or an occupational therapy session? Also to clarify, speech therapy is when a child, you're working on the child's speech, articulation, clarity, stimulation of muscles, and then occupational therapy is more physical, so mm -hmm. hand washing, life skills, tiptoeing, following a line, cycling, physical things. Okay. And But if the child doesn't even have the ability to communicate their basic needs and sit in one place, those therapies are often not always effective either. So I, I often feel a child needs ABA plus others, but they don't always need all therapy. Sorry. Okay. That's fine. <laughs> <laughs> all right. Okay, makes sense. So um, I want to know a little bit about how can your practice actually be, um, you know, disseminated across... Um, different touch points of the child's life. One touch point is the house. But then another touch point is school also. Mm -hmm. And I know that I, because I've worked in uh, private education also, I am very well aware of how um, exclusive schools can be. Not very, uh, they don't have the capacity to be uh, you know, catering to such chi children. Mm -hmm. But have you seen any schools in Pakistan that have you know, created some kind of facilities well, I mean, there are schools that are inclusive, so uh -huh. they take on children with different needs. But the gap that I find is often they give themselves a label of being inclusive without actually, they take the term literally, so they'll be like, oh, child special needs included you. But 
Then where they kind of get stuck is when the child is there, they don't know how to handle them mm-hmm. because they're not trained necessarily to mm-hmm. be exclusive, inclusive. Um, and and uh, to just kind of describe the ideal inclusive model, which I actually saw when I was in Dubai, was that a child goes for therapy. So there's a school, a typical school, and they have an, a section for ABA therapy. Mm-hmm. The child goes for their ABA therapy time there, and then they go to the school for like play time or music time, mm-hmm. and they do the fun stuff in the mainstream school, and then they kind of come back to their ABA therapy. Okay. That's like an ideal inclusive model. Um, so I think in terms of your question, yes, I think people are open to accepting children with different needs, but I think in terms of management, that's the part that's that's kind of lacking. Mm-hmm. And also, I would say, um, in terms of schools, and I've been to schools and I've done workshops, the awareness for the various developmental disorders, they, sometimes teachers need to be able to spot that, oh, this child doesn't actually seem like, uh, they seem like they've got issues or they might even be on the spectrum or they might mm-hmm. be ADHD. And they'll say, but the child isn't focused, the child isn't focused. And I'm like, but hold on, why is he not focusing? You know, and then you have to kind of dig into it and it's very common dyslexia ADHD and all these things but I think that needs to be built into like the teacher training absolutely and I think that's kind of a gap that needs to be filled essentially mm-hmm. yeah. and um, what about in terms of uh, the public education space have you seen any work like this happening over there um, well I have seen uh, one or two public schools and government organizations and I mean they do the typical curriculum I don't think it's necessarily specialized for the kids unless you go just for a, just to a school which is for special needs. But honestly, if I'm to be honest, a lot of work is required. Yeah, the system mm-hmm. goals that need to be streamlined and ways of screening the children mm-hmm. and what to do with them and all that mm-hmm. kind of stuff. Yeah. Have you ever tried like getting into that? Like just in terms of you know working on public policy in any way or working with the local education boards in any way uh, there was some there was a project that that was happening actually um, with with the government uh, where some individuals from the government and we were working on creating an app and a handbook mm-hmm. which would be downloaded by parents with children with autism and that app would provide them with different things such as let's say how to diagnose your child, how to work with your child. Are you a parent? Are you a teacher? Are you a professional? And accordingly, depending on what you were, you'd kind of get directed into another domain of information. But unfortunately, uh, that kind of got held up. <laughs> no surprises there. Yeah. So that didn't really pull through. But maybe at some point, we'll be able to launch it. Let's yeah. see. Yeah. Cool. Sounds like a very cool idea, though. Scope is there. The most important thing is how it's going to be executed right. and received. And mm-hmm. you have to make, put it presented in a way that every person, the lay person, everyone can kind of understand yeah. the idea behind it. Has to be contextualized. Yeah, precisely. Mm. Oh, cool. All yeah. right. So let's zoom out a little bit and let's talk about like society as a whole. Yeah. yeah. Um, this is in Kazi's podcast, so I'm not going to be on like philosophical about it. But like from based on your experiences abroad, having lived there, having practiced there also, what do you feel like we need to be doing as a society to become more inclusive? Okay. First of all, before we even go inclusive, I think the first thing we need to do in society, and I say this to so many people, don't hide your child. If your child has an issue, big deal, we all do. Just because 
I'm, I can communicate and speak doesn't mean that there are things that mentally bother me, as they do with all of us. I think all human beings have an element of um, a mental struggle or a challenge. And the first thing that I really want to highlight is a lot of people say, Log kya Okay, you go to the mall. Lekin log ke, like, why is your child jumping on his toes or why is he flapping his hands? And so it, to avoid that um, society's, I guess, reaction to them, they don't bring them. Mm-hmm. So then the first thing we can do is bring out your child. Because see, to all the parents who hide their children, they're making it harder for our society to accept it. Why abroad is it not a big deal if you see a child... Uh, producing random sounds or, as I said, walking on tiptoes or coming there. You walk past them, you don't think twice. Because people bring them out, so you become desensitized. Another example, COVID. Hmm. If I walked around with a mask before COVID happened, everyone would be like, why is she wearing a mask? Yeah. What happened? Everyone did it. It became, everyone got desensitized. Now it's like, why are you not wearing a mask, right? Yeah. So it's the same with these kids. If you bring them out, you bring them out, you bring them out, society will become more and more and more and more aware and then therefore they'll be able to point out and for the future generation to come, they'll be able to point out, oh, there's a, this could be the problem because they've seen XYZ child. Mm-hmm. And once awareness is increased, more people will know about it, more people will be doing more about it and therefore inclusion will also take place. And one simple thing in our society to do inclusion for special needs, uh, putting ramps everywhere. Mm-hmm. That's one thing I always say. I mean, where do most restaurants don't have a ramp. Yeah. Malls, maybe now they, now they do, but making places accessible to anybody, and I think that's the first step, mm-hmm. be it physical or cognitive, mm-hmm. amongst many other things. But yeah. That's but, and that's like, can you li- dive a little bit more into like cognitively, how can we make it more inclusive? Because like the physical inclusivity is also like, it, it's, you have, people watching this have naturally gone, you know, abroad. I'm guessing and even if you haven't, you've gone to Dolmen, <laughs> you've gone to Centaurus, or you've gone to the airport also for that matter as well. You've seen the ramp, right? Yeah. You've seen the railing. You've seen the signs of this wheelchair parking. Um, but cognitively, like, I, what would what could we do? Like, is there something that would be a more overt kind of cue to be inclusive in that matter? I would say, um, so obviously we're adults and, and we know a certain amount. I think things like what we're doing today, this podcast, is mm-hmm. good for adults to, to know and be more aware. Mm-hmm. Um, I think cognitively how one can educate people is starting with our future generation. In, in introducing, so I know schools perhaps are doing mindfulness. I'm not sure how much that's been executed, but teaching empathy in schools. Yeah. I studied in Karachi for four years. Uh and it was always about the best becomes better. The A-grade student is the best. And the best were always given more attention than the people who were average. Mm-hmm. And I think it should be the reverse. The children yeah. who are struggling should be given more attention. And the ones who are good are anyway going to be good. Perhaps this is a debate. But uh, this is at least what I believe. And I think teaching ch- students who are currently studying about all these different delays and disorders and how to be empathetic about it and to understand that these are issues. Mm-hmm. And you know, when we're young, we're like, oh, this child is weird or when we were young. and But that's not inclusive, right? Because we are not used to seeing that, an mm-hmm. individual who looks different or behaves differently. Yeah. So I think for schools to obviously take on different children and then educate the typical children that in school you're going to have children who can talk, some won't talk, some will talk with their hands. So you're kind of... Creating this element of awareness, empathy, and mm-hmm. yeah, that's what I would say. But an 
I- idealistic setting, but I think it no, could but work. I think it's needed also to be honest. Yeah. Like we need more of that, and yeah. not just in school. I think like everywhere, everywhere. It's kind of on us, exactly. Yes, I was just gonna say that. Like it's kind of on on you also to you know to have the same kind of um, attitude and empathetic demeanor with all of your team members as well, with not just the parents and the kids, but then on the team members as well. Mm-hmm. Whether that person is there from your janitorial staff or to another facilitator like yourself. Absolutely, yeah. Yeah. So, what what do you? Um, are, is there anything on the side that you're working on with eye care um, that's in your field only to grow it or like to um, expand it in some way? Well, so at the moment, because I think COVID has helped one understand and want to explore the online platform. That is something I'm looking at. How was that for you, by the way? Like, uh, yeah, tell me about that. Like going online. So basically, in our kind of work, you're literally. I mean, you gotta be physically with the child if you yeah. want to engage the child. These kids lack focus, lack attention. They're looking away, so you have to like sit in front of them and like engage them. So what happened was honestly, when we shut, I could I could only take on the sessions because my team wasn't trained to do online sessions, and I only took on a few. But actually, it was fantastic and i'll tell you why in fact two of the couple of clients that i took on went vocal on online sessions why i'll tell you because they were effective because the mother sat with the child Ah. it wasn't just me and the child then the mom got so fully trained and felt so responsible for that child and started seeing results with their child so i'll be i'll tell the mom i'll be like mom okay put this on the table okay now give this to the child okay now do this now we're going to teach this and i kept guiding the mom and the mom became like a therapist is a therapist let's say and so what happened was when the mom picked up those skills, then she implemented it throughout the day. So the child had those 40 hours that I was saying. The child probably got so many hours of therapy naturally. Wow. And so the child picked up on concepts really fast. So it, and in fact, parents started feeling more invested in their child as well. Um, so it was a really interesting experience. Initially when we started, I was not sure how to go about it. But then I realized the main therapist becomes the mom. Mm. And then you kind of train the mom. So it went really well. Um, and as I said, we had kids who could communicate through sign and started becoming vocal and then started speaking. So that was wow. very, very exciting. Um, but yeah, I mean, moving on forward in terms of the field and um, something on the side of iCare, I want to actually launch an online platform of teaching. Uh, so in fact, just today I was looking up uh, Skillshare. It's, uh-huh. it's <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> I'm quite new to this though. I've actually uploaded a lot of videos of the work we do, but I thought I'd make it into an actual a subscription because we are allowed yeah. to to teach different modules and I've conducted trainings before. Mm-hmm. So that is something I'm looking to do which would be accessible to anyone in the world. Very cool. Very cool. So, not awesome. to work on that. Yeah. Um See. So that's definitely one of them and then hoping to at some point start a school where we yeah. teach a lot of more functional skills like showering, baking, you know, bigger facility expand in Pakistan. Wow. Inshallah, inshallah. I mean, you know, baby steps, baby steps, yeah. but I think you got to start somewhere. Yeah. Along the lines, always going to be challenges, kind of jump over and keep going. So. Great. Awesome. Yeah. Awesome. Is there anything else you'd like to add in to this whole conversation before I ask you the last magical question, which oh, I ask everyone? Okay. Oh, okay. Well, um, I think I've got to share a lot about what I wanted to say. I think you've asked some fantastic questions that really touched upon um, some good points over there. And as I said, I think the, the one thing that I always generally say on a, when, I, when I'm closing, you know, an interview or whatever is that the people who can really help our society understand 
children with different needs is the parents. Mm-hmm. And that is by bringing the kids out there. Honestly, that's the main thing I can say. The whole desensitization thing of people getting used to it and becoming more aware is the first thing mm-hmm. to do. And, and having an open mind of that. And, as, and you also had mentioned, you know, in terms of the cognitive aspect, how can we be more inclusive? Schools introducing the idea of special mm-hmm. needs and what it means to all of us in school if we had a particular class that mm-hmm. would be just on this. Mm-hmm. So that is something that I would say. And another thing I want to say is, let's say if parents are watching this, is that you need to remember, because sometimes parents think, why me? Why is my child like this? But I always say that actually these children are honestly magical. Like they are so intelligent just because they can't communicate. They are. And you have to understand the world through their lenses, not yours. So parents often say, I want my children, child to learn ABC in one, two, three. And I'm like, why? Because you want them to. What about them? Mm. You need to understand what your child wants. Focus on your child, not on you. Because if you're going to force him to become you when he's not you, you're going to end up actually frustrating him and ruining your relationship. Mm-hmm. So it's important to look at the world through your child's eyes and teach them through their eyes and what makes sense to them. Yeah. And changing your behavior essentially for the child. And that's yeah. what I would really like to say. And then, I mean... We all present different issues in life, be it typical individuals, neurotypical or not. Mm-hmm. And I think every individual has their own ability and charm. And yeah. yeah but I do want to add in actually to what you just said about seeing the, chi- the, the world through the child's eyes as well. I feel like that's not just something that's powerful for parents, but I even feel like I don't have kids. I'm not married yet. But um, like it even matters to the likes of me who don't have kids. Um, but need to be just like as we said like being empathetic towards everyone also with the kid as well like my business partner has two uh two boys as well and we need to remind ourselves also is that wherever they are you need to like always come down to their level Mm -hmm. understand what they're going through as well understand what they're processing what they see the world as and And by the way even physically come down to their level like yes they're sitting you sit and literally my child sit on the floor, I'll lie down on the floor. Yeah. Some of their levels. So, yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> and the other thing you said about was that parents not um, hiding their kids or, like, you know, not acknowledging it. I feel like that's something that needs to come out for every um, uh, parents belonging to every SEC, mm. every socioeconomic background. Because mm. it's not just a matter of, I feel like, um, those who are affluent and who are influential as well also have these biases and these mm. preconceived notions and they kind of have to like break those barriers down true, and true. accept, accept yeah, basically, get yeah. out of denial. Yeah. Um, but thank you for sharing that. That's that very powerful, by the way. Um, mm-hmm. Final question for you is, Isman, this is something I ask everyone. If okay. you could go back in time and you could meet your younger self, what would you tell her? Oh. Uh, ooh, that's... Tough. I tell myself so many things. <laughs> I would say keep going and don't give up. And whatever struggle you're going to go through or hard times, you're going to come out a better person because you know, everything happens for a good reason. And I'll just say never give up. Keep dreaming. And not in like a cliche kind of way. Like literally, we just keep going and conquer each hurdle and and believe that what's meant to be for you will be and what's what's good for you will happen 
<laughs> yeah. Awesome. Cool. Cool. Yeah. All right. Great. This was this was a great conversation. Thank you so yeah. much for coming on. Thanks for having me. My pleasure. Having. My pleasure. That was Isma Khan, everybody. This is episode number 22. Ep- number 22, right? 23. Whatever episode it is, it's going to be up on the title. Um, if you'd like to get in touch with Isma, all the details are in the description. Um, till the next one, everybody. Take care. Bye-bye.